Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman, where I'm Playmaker Mentality. We're on iTunes talking about sports, society, and stuff every single week. Tons of things going on in the world. Let's get to our guest, who is someone extremely special. We always try to get the biggest and the best guests on the show, and we have had some powerhouses before, but we have the football guy himself on right now. Sigmund Bloom is here with us. Sigmund, how are you doing tonight? Doing great, and first I've got to say, pour one out for Jared Mayo. I just saw that he's retiring. That's kind of sad. They were thinking about trading him last year, and I don't think they got a right. good offer. Well, it's injuries. What's sad is we didn't get to see like that second act of his career because the injuries were just too much. But anyway, no, I just I know because we talk Patriots sometimes. Um, thank you, thank you for that introduction. Um, I'm just glad that I get to be around for this tremendous time in the our football community. Um, it's been really exciting in the last five years or so. The draft world used to be real, true football geeks uh, who just were excited. Anybody was going to listen to the geekery, and you know, the draft mecca crew I think ushered in a new era in the draft community where not only is there real high level like game within the game talk, but an attitude and um, honestly like a jovial, like lighthearted sense kind of tweaking people a little bit. And it's been really fantastic to get to know everybody and to become part of y'all's community. It's it. I feel like, you know, when someone like you and Eric Stoner and Justice, and I can go down the list of everybody, you know, um, I'm excited. I feel excited that I get to be part of that. Y'all help us. We were going on like, I'm 40 years old, Ethan. It's coming. Age is coming. Uh, and it's just, it's great. It's like a shot in the arm uh, for this entire thing, which was really a, a bit, you know, it was our little, I don't know how to describe it. Like, <laughs> you go into a social hall and there's like this, it's like the Civil War reenactment or something like that. You know, like that was the draft community. So, and then I also love that the idea is like, it's the community. So, yeah, we're going to talk about football, but we're going to talk about everything because we're part of each other's lives. And I'm very excited to be on your show, but I'm, I'm also very excited uh, that we can bridge all these communities and, create something that is lasting far beyond any of our football takes or anything like that. People have shit to say and I'm here to let them yeah. say their shit and I think that's oh, what really well, excited me. shit to say. Oh. I'm afraid, I'm going to say for the record right now that you may not even hear, I'm afraid because Ethan, and, you know, we've had some very candid conversations on Twitter and I'm afraid of what I'm going to say. Well. So you, there may be things that I say that I, I just that I think that or I just say that. So those of you who are here to witness this I apologize in advance. Oh, uh, grab the popcorn. It's about to go down. Yeah. I think this is yeah. going to be this is going to be interesting. So, we're going to start team though. We're going to start with sports. And actually, I'm going to go off script a bit with my first question. Sure. Have you ever been to Mobile before for the Senior Bowl because you were missed this year yeah. for sure? Yeah, and I've heard that and there's been some things going on in my life that I think I may finally be able to make it back in 2017. Nice. Um, I was in Mobile in 2007, 2008, 2009. I was actually at uh, Mo- I was in Mobile. I was at the Shrine Game, which was moving around a little bit during that time, and at Texas versus the Nation, and it was fantastic. And it was before it was well. The Senior Bowl was kind of known. So the Senior Bowl it was one of the most well kept secrets that it was the NFL convention. Basically, everybody was there. You know, you go to the restaurant, and at the next table over would be Andy Reid and the Eagles staff, 
where you'd sit down in the stands and like Mike Smith and, and, um, you know, you would just sit down next to you. Like, you know, you'd overhear conversations. Uh, so that was really neat, not to mention getting to see the players. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, my son was born in 2010 and I was a stay at home dad. So it was really difficult for me to get away for that amount of time. He's six years old now. So I want to return, but it's a fantastic, fantastic thing. And I know that I'm going to return to something very different than what I left. But again, some of that is the new blood. And also, um, again, that idea of like not taking ourselves too seriously because it is about a road trip to get together with friends and have a good time. So I'm very much looking forward to it. So were you in Mobile this year? I was, and it was great. I think I probably accomplished a little bit more from a professional level last year because I talked to more players and I made a few more connections. And I think that I came in with a little bit more of a need to write because I actually was contracted to write there last year. And then I was supposed to write this year for the site that I'm working part time for, but the player that we expected to get invited ended up getting his invite pulled at the last minute. So I was then down there with no assignments, which was great because it meant that I could talk to people who I had talked to before, talked to people who I hadn't talked to before. Like, I saw Waldman two years ago, but I never actually talked to him. And just speaking to him, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, That that guy is phenomenal. And, I mean, the experience for me, I just sort of, like, sat there and I watched practice with some really smart people. Uh, Mike Tanier making fun of Brandon Allen scrambling five times in a row during a Mm 7-on-7. Emery Hunt, just watching the players with Emery Hunt, who... He's one of the smartest guys ever. Talking to Steve Palazzolo and talking about some of their game charting information. Seeing John Fox randomly drinking at a bar. Insulting the Chargers in front of Tom Telesco, which actually did happen. That was a little bit awkward. Yes, we made fun of Matt Millen in the Shrine Game practices without realizing we were standing right next to Matt Millen. So, yes. That's kind of a badge of honor. Like, the first time I realized, like, I really have to watch. Like, I grew up in a small town, so you didn't talk shit on anybody because it's probably someone's nephew or cousin or relative and that's kind of how it is at the senior bowl like be careful like filter a little yeah. bit or you'll have that moment and, and the it, great thing it, is that it, go ahead yes i was going to say the great thing is that everyone's really nice like everyone who i met was totally open and, the, and we all kind of knew each other we hadn't actually like seen each other before so everything was really natural and it was cool to reconnect with people i met justice and chuck and i yeah. hung out with them for a lot of the time and they're great people uh, so no, it was definitely quite the experience. And I recommend that if you love football or if you just want to find a story and be around a bunch of NFL people, a mobile is really cheap for the most part. Uh, other than the one dinner I went to where I went to the Royal scam, which is like the fanciest restaurant there. And, and that was, that was a little bit more expensive, but that food was amazing. And the company there was amazing too. And also not only do that, but, um, it's Mardi Gras. Yeah. Which you don't realize until you're there. Yeah, they have Mardi Gras week early. Predates the New Orleans Mardi Gras, doesn't it? And There's I w- a good documentary. I can't remember the name of the documentary now. There's a really good documentary about the Mobile Mardi Gras. Uh, it's interesting, too. And the Moon Pies gets into it. Um, it is a place that is, if you love New Orleans, you have the same kind of plantation, uh, like the old houses, the, um, 
the streets, you know, feel the same. You got the same kind of restaurants. Like, did you make it out to Felix's, you know, out on the water? Yeah. That's a classic Cajun style seafood place. So it, it's nice because it's kind of, it feels like kind of a sleepy place where they just roll the, the welcome mat out for the NFL to come. And I think the NFL likes that it's sleepy and it's not a big glitzy thing. It's look at the place NFL likes Indianapolis. So, you know, <laughs> you get an idea. Mobile is like uh, culturally a really fantastic place and like a, a hidden gem. It's funny because I went to New Orleans immediately after and I actually preferred Mobile Mardi Gras to New Orleans Mardi Gras. I think part of it is like the French Quarter. I wasn't the biggest uh, fan. It's it's it's, like it's not the most town. fun place. But there were like so many young people in Mobile. Like we were just chilling at dive bars. We met like all these awesome people who live there. Uh, the bartenders in Alabama can smoke behind the bar, which is awesome. Um, and they have, like, awesome craft beer, and it's just a really nice place. I, I love going down there. It's a great city. I totally agree. I think that it's perfect the Senior Bowl is there. Anyway, moving on to the NFL season as a whole, uh, 2015 was a bit of a crazy year. A lot of unexpected things happened. What would you say your biggest fantasy hits were? Yeah, this is uh... – and it wasn't one of my better fantasy years. And that, I mean, that doesn't mean it was terrible, but there wasn't a ton to hang my hat on. But Thomas Rawls would probably lead the way. And this was one where just watch. I remember watching him back in April last year for the first time and saying, why didn't anybody tell me about Thomas Rawls? Jeez. And this is a beautiful thing about social media because I, I had you know, learned through research that he was in Michigan recruit and there was a, an incident. He ended up in central Michigan. And his mom, I think, was watching Twitter, watching social media to see who was talking about him and seeing that I was talking about him on Twitter. And then she and I had a really good talk, a Twitter talk, you know, about the incident and what he'd done since then. And she told me a bunch of stuff that he later on in the season confirmed uh, with his, his words and, and his, his behavior and his aura, you know, that, that he really, all he wanted was a chance. He did not even feel necessarily entitled to a chance. He just wanted somebody to let him come to a, a, a tryout. Like, that's all he wanted. And if he could get that, he was – and not in a I'm going to prove everybody or anything like that, but just, you know, he, he really understood the mistake he had made. And um, to have that opportunity, you saw – and I don't think even his mama or me could have predicted that given the opportunity – and think of all the things that had to happen for him to get that opportunity. Robert Turbin had to get uh, released, and Christian Michael was traded for a nothing pick, and Marshawn Lynch had his breakdown season – uh, it was beautiful to see because he's one of those uh, players that, you know, in fantasy football or in draft analysis, Ethan, our belief on can people change uh, informs us. And believing people can't change often makes you look smart at the end of the day. But I want to live in a world where people can change. So that was a really great thing to see. Um, I think another one I think you and I probably – at some point talked about at least a little bit, Dion Lewis. And what that was, was a identifying, Hey, Dion Lewis can play is when the Patriots picked him up and then let him have a chance. But then like once he had that first game saying, this is not a, Ooh, Belichick's going to move the shell, the ball under the shell around. He's Belichick's not stupid. That's a really good player. He plays really good players. Don't, don't overthink this. He's not going to. Um, and I think on the other side was the Jeremy Hill, like not so much a hit, a hit on saying that, Everybody's getting way ahead of themselves on Jeremy Hill and a full 
all hands on deck Bengals offense was not going to give him 25 carries a game. Now, I didn't think that he was going to lose his confidence and, and run in wet cement like he was uh, for the first half of the season. But a little a little bit of caution there ended up being good. But it's funny because Evan Silva was on my show, and we had a massive debate about two players we were very far about apart. I, I was anti-Jeremy Hill. He was pro-Jeremy Hill. I was pro-Andre Ellington. He was anti-Andre Ellington. So the point is, like, don't listen to either of us, I guess. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing about Rawls, his 40 time at the Combine was a lot slower, reportedly, than it actually was. I retimed him, and I think his Combine time was like a 4.7. It was something really, really mediocre. And when I retimed him, he had a 4.45 40. Yeah. And Dion Lewis, in that similar range, he ran like a 4.6, reportedly, at his pro day, and... I knew in the preseason, when you watched Dion Lewis play, Dion Lewis was good. And he was yeah. really, really, really fast. Like, you just know when you watch a guy, you're like, man, this guy is going to be a contributor. And I'd argue he probably has 4-3 speed. I mean, some of the plays he made, when he was out, the Patriots were totally screwed up on right, offense. He, and it's a shame because James White... The field against Denver, they beat Denver, right? Agreed. If he's in the backfield for... If he's in the backfield for the entire season, I think that they they might not have lost. They didn't lose when he played, and their offense looked extremely dominant when he played, too. He really is a special player, and they re-signed him after, like, half a season to, like, an extension because they knew this guy was really good. And I do feel bad for James White because I think he did his best, and he really wasn't that bad this year. He just dropped some really bad passes in the championship game, and he's not quite as good as Lewis. I also did not have the best fantasy season, if we're being completely honest, and it comes down to the fact that I undervalued running backs too much. I had a lot of teams where I had stacked receiver groups, Gronk at tight end a lot, or if it was a two-tight end league like Gronk and Jordan Cameron or Eifert or Reed, and then running back, I just missed badly, and we're going to get into misses, I guess. I was wrong about Amir Abdullah. I thought he was going to be Ray Rice, and he clearly he just might, wasn't able. Ray Rice wasn't Ray Rice in his first year. Let's be let's let's set the record straight. Ray Rice was not Ray Rice in his first year, and he looked like maybe the first chapter of disappointing Ray Rice. That, I mean, maybe it depends on how harsh you were interpreting it. So I think this book is not written on, on Amir Abdullah yet. Anyway, go ahead. Agreed, and I think that he benefits from having a good offensive coordinator now. Because say we want about Jim Bob Cooter's name, but he's a better offensive coordinator than whoever they had before. Yeah, uh, yeah. Lombardi. And the thing that concerns me is the fumbles, and I don't think that's a problem that usually changes. If a guy like Stephen Ridley, who I saw, who was a pretty good running back in New England, but he gets that fumble rep, every team is going to strip for the ball, and he's going to become marginalized a bit by that. And I hope Abdullah continues to improve but that does scare me a little bit. But I had him in every single league pretty much, and I would compliment him with a gaggle of mediocre running backs. I had <laughs> Carlos Hyde in one league, who was pretty good for a little bit, but then he got injured, unfortunately. Uh, Garrett Blunt in another league. It just didn't end very well for me. I had a couple of nice beginnings to the season, and then it all pretty much went downhill after that. I won one league out of, like, five, and... That wasn't good enough for me. I was 0 for 18, so you did Okay, well, that's good. But who were your biggest misses this year? Yeah, well, it's Frank Gore. I mean, I love Frank Gore, the player, first of all. And um, I looked at that offense 
that um, you saw that you saw what Indy did with Trent Richardson, you know, putting them in third and nine with two carries on first and second down. You saw them without Andre Johnson, who really was done. But you saw them like Reggie Wayne was done the year before, so you thought that you know Dwayne Allen was hurt, well, he stayed hurt. Um, you thought the offensive line's not that great, but hey, and Andrew Luck's going into his fourth year now. It just seemed to me like you give them Frank Gore, who still looked to me like he was running well in San Francisco. Uh, also, we had what Ahmad Bradshaw caught, I don't remember, what, six, eight touchdowns in ten games in 2014. So you think Gore's going to get those? None of it came together, and Gore played pretty well while the the, Saints, the Colts were going down the toilet, on the, down the drain. Uh, but by the end of the season, he really did look old. Because <clears throat> that was the main thing. It was like, he's old. Uh, but he didn't look old, but the team looked old, and then he and the team looked old. And Minnesota wide receivers. I spent a decent number of picks on Mike Wallace, or maybe Charles Johnson in the 7th or 8th round. I thought, Teddy Bridgewater is going to make another step this year. Norv Turner is going to set him up with two deep, you know, vertical passing. Adrian Peterson's going to draw everybody into the box. And it was the opposite, really. You know, they kept Teddy in the passing game more in bubble wrap and on a good game, he would throw maybe 25 passes. Mike Wallace was washed up. Charles Johnson was right down, sitting on the bench with Cordero Patterson. So I really expected Minnesota's pass offense to do more, and it did less. I do feel bad for Teddy because I watched a lot of his games this year, pretty much the entire second half of the season, and he really does look better than his numbers indicate. Because yeah. you see the pocket movement, you see the throws he's making. He needs that signature win still. I'm not even sure that Carr has a signature win yet, but I think Teddy needs that comeback opportunity where he shows in the clutch, which could have been that Arizona game. It also honestly could have been that Seattle playoff game where he did enough to win, but unfortunately Blair Walsh missed the easiest kick ever. We'll see what happens with them, but they definitely need a receiver. I know that Arif Hassan, if you don't read him, you should, is doing amazing work on receivers this year. Yes. And I do think they're going to end up taking one pretty early, and we'll see who it ends up being. Uh, I think he did one today on Michael Thomas from Ohio State, who is someone who I know is a bit of a polarizing guy, but we'll see what happens with him. Two more things about the NFL, and I actually want to go to the Combine. It is this week, and for me, the Combine has taken a little bit more importance in recent years, especially when you look at some of the results of the most athletic prospects and how they have translated really well. You look at the top running backs last year. I mean, Amir Abdullah, his spark score was amazing, and he looked good when he played. Of course, he had the fumbles, but otherwise, athletically, he looked pretty darn good. Jeremy Langford, David Johnson, two late-round guys who really were spark plugs. And I had David Johnson drafted on all of my teams. I just wish he had made his spark a little bit sooner. Right. How much do you consider combine performance when you're evaluating a player? Because I think that there is a marriage between tape and metrics, but recently I feel like metrics has become, to me, a little bit more important as sort of a contextualizer for what you're seeing on the field. Well, it's it's giving you context. Okay, so you mentioned uh, time speed for players like Thomas Rawls or Deion Lewis and what you observe on film. And I think we should always trust what we observe on film when the two disagree. Always. Always. Because it could be, you know, say what you will about these combine tests, but they, they measure raw athleticism, but they also measure how how good you are at the test. 
And I've been in training facilities when prospects are doing combine training, and it's very much like this is how you get a good start on the 40. This is how you maximize your vert. It's not something you do where you train to increase your actual vertical leap. It's something where you understand that, you know, oh, you're putting your arm out. Like if you keep your arm close to your body, that's going to be better for you. It's, it's like, I didn't get my driver's license until I was 24. Long story. Uh, and I remember when I finally went to get my driver's license, I took a driving school, like three classes and they just taught you, actually took you to the place where you were going to take the driving test, like the streets, and told you, like, they're going to ask you to do this, they're going to ask you to do this, they're going to ask you to do this. And this is how you do all of it. Like, when you do the parallel parking, like, when you, your front of your car is pointed at that sign, that's when you should reverse and make sure, you know what I'm saying? Like, not teaching you how to parallel park, teaching you how to pass the test. Well, then, you prob- sorry, ahead. just to no, cut ahead. in super quick. Do you think that players should have to do the drills on the combine in pads? Well, I think that we would probably get a, a bit more accurate uh, assessment. But at the same time, like, you will see guys, Ethan, I know you know this. I mean, I know you've seen this. You've observed this. Like, there's some guys that, like, what's their top speed? What does it take to make the play? You know? There's some players that really do have, like, an extra gear when the ball's in the air. Not everybody. Uh, and, and so, again, this is where actually watching them play football is going to inform that. Now, you brought up someone like David Johnson. Now, for small school players, for players when you're watching them, you might not see the level of competition that they're going to see around them in the NFL. Now those numbers take on more weight. Now those senior bowl practices or shrine game practices take on more weight because it's giving you a different context for their athleticism that you might not be able to observe or glean if you're watching them playing FCS or Division II football or something like that. So it's a case-by-case basis, but... You know, if we see somebody look explosive on tape and it doesn't translate in their combine numbers, we should absolutely trust the tape. And when you get into statistical models and things like that, the problem is, is it's based on one data point. And, you know, the guy could be sick. He could be nursing an injury that he's not talking about. He could just be bad at the start out of the blocks on the 40. So when you start doing that with the models, you're – I mean, the idea of a model is – great if we really could know that what we're feeding into it is a true representation of that raw athletic ability. But it's not always. Uh, and then the last context we always need are, are skills and abilities. You know, I mean, all it's like the car and the driver, right? I mean, you can have a car that has a 250 mile an hour top speed and this great handling and all of these features, but we still need to know about the driver. And the driver, it doesn't show up in those combine tests, except maybe you could say like hard workers are going to shave, you know, tenths of seconds or hundreds of seconds off of their 40 time or add something to their bench press. Sure, I won't deny that, but that that's good. You're good at those tests. But that doesn't tell us about football. So it's always going to be a case-by-case basis. And I understand the application of this stuff, but it is happening inside the NFL. Now, Organizations like Cleveland Browns might feel, you know, uh, free to ignore things. It's not just analytics based on measurables; also based on production and things like that. So I think as long as it's as long as you're not using it as a substitute for watching a player, it's excellent. I think it brings up questions to ask. I think it starts conversations. I don't think it answers the questions or ends the conversation.
Well, the Browns are embracing analytics now. They got the Podesta, right. Sashi Podesta. Brown. Yeah. They're really doing it. I'm excited to see what happens with them. That's going to be a really interesting experiment to watch. I hope they don't Cleveland it up. That would be really disappointing. <laughs> and make a lot of people who I would rather not be happy very happy. So this, I feel like, is a good segue. Uh, we are still going to touch on the NFL, but I want to talk about the NFL as an organization handling difficult issues, because we have discussed this before, and I know you have some very strong opinions and some background in terms of like legal stuff, which is always good to inform cases like this. So domestic violence has really become a hot-button issue for the NFL in recent years, especially the last two years. And it is a little bit intriguing to me to get your input in how you think the NFL has handled the issue. Because to me, from my perspective, and I think that this is something that we have seen throughout Roger Goodell's tenure as a commissioner, there is no foresight in the NFL anymore. Like, they couldn't have seen that this was an issue, that this is something that they should have been addressing. They didn't already have a program in place to help rectify this issue of players get caught doing this crime. I just don't understand how a league where this is prevalent and has always been prevalent, let's not get it twisted, domestic violence didn't just start two years ago, I've never understood how they didn't have a better action plan in place before now. And they still don't even really have an action plan. They have their fake no more organization, which doesn't really do anything. So I just want to hear your perspective sure. on that. And I'll try to um, contain my thoughts and organize them well here. The NFL will do what it needs to in so much as they perceive it affecting, potentially affecting their bottom line. So what caused action the Ray Rice video? Because what, what's wild about the whole Ray Rice thing was if you were paying attention, how do you think she got knocked out cold in the elevator? Did you really need to see him do it to understand the ramifications of this story? I think there was a video of him dragging her out of the elevator, right? What did you think happened before that? But that video set it off. And maybe it's because more people were paying attention to football because it was during the season. And they, and this is where um, I get excited, and uh, I know that we may talk about this a little bit later, about activism or about uh, direct action, like political direct action, uh, that they were terrified. The, The NFL was terrified at that point because they saw a groundswell of negative publicity that they could tell was endangering them. And like you said, they don't have foresight. They don't know what to do. And they they were freaked out. You could feel it. And that's exciting. It's exciting because it tells me that anytime the people find their voice, anytime the people can align enough that their voice really resonates, all these too big to fail institutions run scared. They can't they know that they can't actually stop us. So they did what they needed to do to release the pressure valve. And it basically worked because whatever, the NFL is so compelling and it satisfies tribal needs we have and a lot of other needs we have. It's America, baby. You know, it's our sanctioned violence. You know, like Chris Borland said, like, how do you make violence safer? That's another interesting character to talk about, concussions and things like that. So they did what they needed to do. You know, it's 
it's it's really interesting too that they do they do what they need to do for domestic violence, but they really do seem to o- overstep on something like you know marijuana or something like that. Deflated footballs, for instance. Oh God, like Jeez. they do this full investigation of deflated footballs, and this Peyton Manning story that just came up gets completely pushed under the rug. Right, uh, and right. I don't even think it would have been amplified that much if everyone didn't hate Sean King because. Oh, God. And and I have my own reasons for just liking Sean King. I've heard some tales about him dealing with other activists. That guy, sure. I will say, the people who are making accusations about Sean King saying he's not really black are stupid and they need to stop. Right. Because the guy's black. Period. End well, of story. And it and on that topic, like, are we really going to say there's like you got to have certain bona fides to have a voice on something? I mean, because the pre- the whole premise there is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that would somehow discredit, like, anyway, sorry. No, you're totally right. Like, who are we to make that judgment? I think that after Rachel Dolezal happened, that was just a convenient right. narrative that someone decided to throw in and shoehorn Sean King into. But you're totally correct that, you know, why should he be subjecting him to that in the first place if he's trying his best to help out we should be encouraging him regardless we shouldn't necessarily be hurting him so much but yeah i mean i just don't think the nfl thought this was going to be an issue until i guess this new age of social media where all of a sudden people are galvanizing and talking about these issues in a more formal context like you can't and you don't have time to to get ahead of it Exactly. Like, already, like like five or ten minutes after the story breaks, it's already run rampant. Like because they have big PR firms and stuff, fixers to deal with this, but not no more does that work. You know what I think was the turning point, Ethan? Do you remember when um, Susan B. Komen, Race for the Cure, pulled their Planned Parenthood funding? It was like yes. 2011, I think. And everybody and everybody's like, "Oh hell no! Nah. What? Uh, no." Um, and then, and at that moment, Race for the Cure had an association that was forever changed, and it could never be undone. No matter what they tried to do to rehabilitate it, it was over. And I do think that this is a scary, scary proposition for the institutions that have concentrated money and power and are able to control the, the, the dialogue and otherwise try to continue to rig the game for their ends. Because I always say if they knew what Twitter really was, they would shut it down. They would shut it down because look at how the role played like in the Arab Spring. You know, I mean, it gives uh, voices that people aren't used to having to listen to. Egypt did shut Twitter down during the Arab Spring, didn't they? Yeah, they did. So So it's interesting because I think the, the key here is we decide how we feel about it. We decide what it means. You don't get a chance to get out ahead of something now. And I think we're just scratching the surface of what is possible. And also, technology is going to integrate more to where we're really going to be able to... You remember, like, flash mobs, you know? Yeah. Think about the, the think about the, the potential of flash mobs with activism. So this is all, these are all things that are near and dear to my heart. And, the, and when they do tangentially bump up against the NFL, it, it's an exciting moment. Because, first of all, it's a chance that... I mean, like my Twitter's all football, so I can talk about social issues on my Twitter. Because I, I try to stay in my lane. Um, but going back to domestic violence really quickly... And, the NFL and football culture in general has a massive casual sexism problem. Massive. It's, it infiltrates everything. I was very proud that my tweet about the that Tampa Bay Buccaneers thing, like ways to make you know Tampa Bay 
theme parties and food and Buccaneers clothes that match, you know, everyone in the stadium. Like, female football fans love football. Talk to them like football fans. Like, you want to get female football fans? Lana Berry wrote a really great one on the Houston Astros at some, like, ladies' night out in the stadium, and it was all, like, you know, you know, just, again, like, infantilizing the female audience. Uh, cheerleaders. I loved seeing the class action, like, the cheerleaders. Uh, lawsuits. I mean, they've been giving them basically free labor, like, un- like undercutting labor laws. Um, you know, you can look at the the just – some of the ways people talk about football, like he hurt his vagina, <laughs> you know, it's it's a and it's really uh, the, I think the domestic violence issue is another uh, place where now in this era, like no longer does this stuff uh, is this stuff allowed to fly without at least someone saying no, no, that's not right. I don't think that you can do that or say that without at least having to hear us say how it makes us feel or what we believe it means when you do that. And again, I feel like we're just getting started on this and a generation of people that are not going to sit quietly and politely are coming up y'all's generation. And it's a really exciting time because I come from the Kurt Cobain generation, you know, like, come on. Who cares? It's all rigged anyway. Why are you even bothering? You know? And uh, I see, I'm so excited about the possibilities now because I see people coming up saying, oh, we can and will do something about it. I think that the sexism in sports problem does not just pertain to the NFL. It's in all sports and it's everywhere. I mean, I agree with you what you were saying about the Tampa Bay issue. And there's always those articles that come up like, how to watch the Super Bowl as a woman, how to go to the Masters as a woman. And it's, like, so patronizing. It just really angers me uh, just to see that because why would you try to make that delineation? At the same time, though, and I want to make this call to any women who are on Twitter and have thoughts about football and want to share them, there are not – I cannot think of any women – who would be in quintessential draft Twitter. I can think of a couple in fantasy Twitter. And I think that it's unfortunate, and I, I hope it's not because the space doesn't make them feel comfortable there. Uh, that is something that I have thought about, because I've tried to get women on this show before, and I have a couple of pending requests, and I'm hoping that one comes on very soon, because yeah. I want to talk... I think that they have a perspective on issues that I really want to make sure is discussed, and I don't want it to seem like I'm only, like, having guys on the show. Right. Because I'm not. I'm actively trying to to get a diverse group of voices and, and get a lot of people to talk, but the pool isn't huge, from what I've seen. At least not in terms of those who are regularly producing content that I necessarily consume, and maybe I'm just following the wrong people. I mean, I follow some awesome female writers who are covering these issues and doing a great job at it. Uh, I think I just might need to follow some more. But going back to the NFL's point, I think that your Pittsburgh Steelers had a couple of the perfect cases of how little the NFL actually cares about women. Um, William Gay, whose mother was a victim of domestic violence, wasn't allowed to wear specially pink clothes longer than the breast cancer awareness month which is so stupid 
Like, if the guy's passionate about an issue, let him sort of live in that issue and represent it on the stage where he wants to represent it. And then D'Angelo Williams as well, who lost his mom to breast cancer, he got fined. And those are the kind of things that the NFL is going to have to contend with because I agree with what you said about the generational shift. That is going to be with the players as well. Uh, One of my favorite prospects of this year's draft class is Eric Stryker. Uh, from Oklahoma, who made his opinions really, really loudly known after the entire SAE scandal. Uh, We are really reaching the breach, and this is something that the NFL is going to have to either soften on, or uh, something is going to have to change, because you're going to get more and more players speaking out on issues, and sports is where society often makes changes. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on, at least from my perspective. Those are my thoughts on um, women and also sexism and generally NFL and, I guess, um, perceived gaps on Twitter, too, because it does. it is something that I recognize. It is, so there's so much to go through here. Really quickly, though, the Mizzou football situation last year when the players were going to stop, like, just, you know, say we're not playing, we're not playing football if you don't address this that we've been telling you about, and it's not just one thing. Um, it's, it was a massive turning point because this goes back to the NCAA and a lot of people being enriched by someone else's work. You want to get into the idea that people are enriched by someone else's work, that they didn't earn the enrichment? Then mm. NCAA football. And players finally saying, we create that product. We decide if the game is going to be played or not. And the school, the coach, stayed stood behind his players and it was, there was action. So it's realizing your power. Kane Coulter, I think wasn't he just signed? Wasn't Kane Coulter just signed in San Francisco? Am I, am I imagining that? I'm not entirely sure, but I will check right now. I, yeah, he was. I think it was San Francisco. I could, or, or he was like a new GM. I don't know. My point is this, Kane Coulter and then and unionizing uh, college athletes. You know, he's not blacklisted. Um, he was signed by the Rams, the Ra- by the way. The Rams? Okay, so it was the Rams. Right state. The, the Rams. The Rams and the players walking out with, the, like, hands up, don't shoot, you know? The Rams stood by their players. I think that, like, the, the Mizzou thing, and it's okay to talk about it in pragmatic terms. Like, how are you going to recruit if you don't stand behind your players after that? The thing about re- Mizzou, though, that I also think is interesting is, at least according to the reports that I read, the players who had NFL futures were either not supportive of the protests or they were very, very minimal in vocalizing their protests. And even Gary Pinkle went on a radio show and said like that he really wasn't that supportive of it. So there definitely still is a culture of silence, of staying your lane in football in general, but I do think that we're going to reach a breaking point at some point where things are going to have to change. It's going to be some issue so big that the players aren't going to budge, and then the NFL is going to have a problem on their hands. And on, on the subject of female voices in uh, football, in one place I think that we've seen, you know, I can remember the Patriot Missiles, you know, you remember that? Uh, you're probably too young to remember that. Actually. I do not know what you're talking about. Uh, Lisa, Lisa Olsen, <laughs> was that her name? writer oh yeah when she didn't she get like accused of like um staring at someone in the locker room or something like that just it was like a a, a, the idea of women don't belong in locker rooms you know 
And, and now there's like some of the most tremendous beat writers out there are female beat writers. And you, and you really have gotten to the point where it doesn't even, you don't really pause whether it's like Mike Grease or Shalice Manza Young. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's just good beat writers. Um, we haven't gotten there. You're right. When it comes to an, analysts, there are in fantasy, there are a few female analysts. Um, I've had Liz Loza on my show. And, you know, but like you said, even wanting to have diversity, I want to have diversity on the football guy staff. It's hard. And I don't even, I don't just mean diversity like females. I mean, you know, you look through this, our little world here. This is one of the reasons I think that, um, that the new blood that I talk about in the draft community is so fantastic. Cause it's not all the, you know, you mentioned like Arif Hassan, you know, this, these aren't the typical white dude perspectives. And I'm not disparaging that. I'm a kind of white dude. Um, but you're right that those women out there that believe they have something to say, there's so many wonderful women I've worked with in the industry. Um, now maybe the next level is that really a you know, very rigorous analysis of football and not even just the part where you're like a, a personality or an entertainer like we are when we do fantasy football analysis, but more like the draft stuff. There's still a lot to overcome where this idea of like that – that table's not open for you. And I will say this, having conversations off the record um, with different women in the football industry, different levels, there's still massive disincentives towards telling the truth about what's, what it's like that you will get branded immediately. You know, you're, you're difficult to work with. You're too ambitious. Um, you know, you take, you blow things out of proportion. Um, you can't be trusted. You know, uh, you have to swallow a lot of shit. You know, there's a lot of things that if if you, there's so many things that if you are not a member, if you're a member of the dominant group, let's say, you know, white, straight, Christian males, that you will, it will never even occur to you. you. Like, that's the whole point, right? Like, that's the whole point of privilege is that you don't even have to think about it. So, of course, when it's brought up, you're going to say, but that's, I've never experienced that. I've never seen that. No one's ever told me about that. So I just don't believe that it exists. And I think there's a lot of things. Harassment on Twitter. You know, you yeah. and I have been harassed by people. Are, are, are they saying, like, you know, are, are they are they coming after us, like, to the point where you would want to get a restraining order or something? Yeah, the experience not. for women on Twitter, from my oh understanding, my is very, very different from the experience that men have on Twitter. If you experienced it for, like, one day as a man, you'd be like, whoa. Like, could you whoa, imagine, like, whoa. and, again, if you are a female draft writer who wants their stuff to get noticed, Please. I will RT you. Let me know. I'll yeah. follow you and give you all the yeah. advice that I can. Um could you imagine what happens if they make a mock draft and someone doesn't like their team's pick? Like, that one instance that we sort of just, like, throw off, like, there could be actual abuse. I remember there was yeah. an issue once where I think um, the all, I want to say, published Jezebel's seating chart as a practical joke. And Emma Carmichael, who is a phenomenal writer, wrote a piece that said, even though you thought it was a joke, that actually affects us because we get people who, like, threaten our lives and stalk us on a regular basis. And it's just not something, again, that you think about. And that's why I always preach empathy and, like, trying to think in other people's perspectives and shoes because I think that's really, really important. Um, so we've been 
talking about the NFL for a while, and I think that we can definitely frame the next couple of questions. We sort of touch on generational activism. You, as you said, are 40, from the Nirvana generation, the Kurt Cobain generation. What are you seeing that is different now from when you were in your mid-20s? Yeah, so I went to law school in in my mid-20s. And I went to law school ready to change the world, uh, University of Texas. I was I was going to do union organizing. I was going to I was going to litigate Native American land claims. You know, I was at UT. My first year of law school was the year that Hopwood came down. I don't know if that was the first like not only affirmative action or racial quotas. You know, not constitutional. It's discrimination against white people. Now, this is being said in the background of when uh, Heman Sweat, the first black UT law student in 1954 or 51, I don't remember exactly the year, he was one of six black law students out of about 250. In my class, I think there was eight out of 500. And you're trying to tell me that like admissions are you know, causing damage, the admissions policies that take race into account. So I thought I was going to change the world. And uh, as I'm very fond of saying, like, I'll save everybody $100,000, three years of law school, and tell you what you learn in law school. Everybody is making it up as they go along, and you can too. You know, now you have a JD and a bar card, now you can start making it up as you go along too. Uh, and it was, it was a real, it was devastating, honestly. It was, it, it took all the wind out of my sails to know that the game is rigged, to know that uh, even if you play by the rules, the, the the at the very top, there's you know like no actual good can happen, no actual change can happen. But this was also in the background of the Clinton years, where everything kind of felt like you know there wasn't any big boogeymen to target. Everything everything changed uh, in the last 10, 15 years on that front. So, but most of what, what I most want to call attention to. Uh, is this idea that what I love seeing in millennials or, you know, people your age and younger is that nobody's saying, what can I do? Nobody's waiting for someone to tell them what to do or some older person, some very serious person to say, well, if you want to do something, this is what you have to go get an internship here and do this and a clerkship and and then maybe you can, no, 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 we're going to do it ourselves. This is even down to like teenagers, you know, like preteens. Like we don't have to wait for someone to tell us what to do. I know what to do. I know how to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to ask anyone's permission. Uh, it's very exciting because I think we were the cynical. I think there was a great Simpsons where they're at Lollapalooza, right? And they ask Bart and Lisa, like, you're from the generation that experiences neither highs nor lows. How is it? And they go, eh. <laughs> you know, um, that was our story. And it's very exciting to see a group of people coming up that are sincere, that are earnest, and saying, we can and will do something about it. In fact, this is what's important. Not, am I setting myself up to have marketable skills and make a certain amount of money over the course of my lifetime? Not uh, how well-known I will be or prestigious or my my legacy will be in my field or something. No, no. Like you said, human, humanity, empathy passion um, these things are coming back and the level of engagement you know we talk about like bernie sanders right whatever happens with bernie sanders and hillary whatever happens with this 2016 election 
there's a brand new generation of people that are energized about the idea of many things like economic justice, but particularly like universal healthcare. And I do believe that um, in the next generation or two, we will see universal healthcare here. It's inevitable. And it will be because this new group of people are engaged. So whatever happens in this presidential election, things are being set in motion and things are being set in motion because there's a new generation that will not take no for an answer. And I think you're seeing this in some of the rhetoric uh, in the Clinton Sanders stuff where it's like, what's good is idealism. You know, let's talk about incremental change that is actually possible. No, 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 no. It always starts with idealism. It always starts with believing you can do the impossible because we can. Uh, and part of it is believing that we can. I I just want to like run for president now. That was amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. one of these days I'm old enough now. I'm 40. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You could totally do it someday. The one thing that really has jumped out to me, and first of all, it's really refreshing to hear a different perspective uh, from sort of with your experience and growing up in a different background. I totally understand where you're coming from, though. Like, this is a very self-sufficient generation and a very sensitive generation. And I think that a lot of people don't really understand the sensitivity. And I don't want to, like, make a broad political statement that, like, young people are Democrats and old people are Republicans, even though demographically that is sort of where we're seeing the lines drawn. There are, of course, counterexamples, so please don't pound me with counterexamples in my mentions. But look at the the tones of the two different primaries. On one hand, as you said, you have an idealist who has been surprising everyone, and on the other side, you have a billionaire who said that all Mexicans are rapists. There's a dichotomy there, and there is a generational sense there that, on one hand, I don't want to like disparage people from a different generation, but I do think that there is a sensitivity and an empathy with people my age, and I fucking hate the word millennials, so let's not use the word millennials, because it sucks, and I hate it so much. But I think there is a sensitivity of people my age that isn't there with all older people. Um, Because they never really had to deal with that before, as you said. Like, this isn't something that necessarily they would have ever thought about. The difference is that we're thinking about it. And I want to end this segment by asking about a topic that honestly I'm still a little bit divided over and you have plenty of academic experience. So I'll be interested to hear your feedback here. Uh, And this also has to do with Missouri, the entire debate over safe spaces um, where if you don't know what happened, uh, there was a student who was stating a hunger strike at Missouri. This happened a few months ago and a number of students of all races, all backgrounds, sort of congregated in the middle of campus and press tried to take pictures of them doing it and they were pushed back. And the excuse was that this was a safe space. We've seen that a lot of colleges as well at Yale. Uh, there is an issue where a housemaster said something insensitive and a lot of students complained. And this is something that's happened across the country. Now I'm going to be intrigued by your opinion on this. For me, it isn't black and white. I think that there needs to be a line drawn between academics and the recreational aspect. 
I think that there is a responsibility for colleges to teach a variety of views, even if some of those views make people a little bit uncomfortable. I have no issue with premising lectures by saying that this might make you uncomfortable. Uh, I don't have an issue with trigger warnings. But I do think that it's important to know your enemy. Like, it's important to know what you should be opposed to. Uh, and on the other hand, and this goes for the Yale guy, if your job is something residential, if you're like an RA, if you're a housemaster, and your job is not interacting with students on an academic level, then yes, I do think it's your responsibility to make the campus feel safe. Um, well, but yeah, that's like just my two cents. It's, like you said, it's not a very simple issue. It's, it's, it's nuanced. It's complex. There's a lot of different angles to come at here. Uh, what I am most struck by, Ethan, in this whole argument or debate or topic about colleges and attacks on free speech, you can probably already tell by the way I said that, where I'm going to fall on this, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, first of all, colleges are the places that you experiment. You experiment with ideas. You experiment with a lot of things. It makes me really sad, by the way, that it seems like getting degrees is going to go the way of you know online, quick, you know, two weekends a month for six months and you get your degree or something. Because the real value of going to a four-year college is being exposed to all kinds of people that you will not find for the rest of your life in your natural course of life. You're going to end up being more and more as you go on through your life around people like you. And in college, I was in Syracuse from 93 to 97. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you that all the different kinds of people from different countries, from different class, different backgrounds. I grew up in a coal mining town in western Pennsylvania. You know, it was mind-blowing, really mind-blowing to get to cross-pollinate with so many people, so many perspectives and experiences. And I think that, uh, that that's going by the wayside is sad, but you know, the colleges have always been like this. I mean, the college environment is folks in the sixties, like they were actually bombing and occupying buildings and things, you know, college students in the sixties were going way beyond saying you shouldn't be allowed to say that. And it made me upset that you said that it's a crisis. Really? It's a crisis that college, college students are taking ownership of those spaces and saying, like, no, we're, you know, I think the Yale thing was about um, being sensitive about your Halloween costume, right? Like, don't yeah. be that, don't be that asshole. And I think the housemasters were like, "Well, children dress up in costumes like that." And no one said, "Well, they're not children. You're not a child anymore when you're in college." The whole point of the thing was saying, "Think about it." It's just the beginning to the political correctness. Political correctness. And I like that idea. Like, just everywhere you see political correctness, insert being. Considerate of other people's feelings, like actually thinking about how this could affect somebody that's not like you or affect somebody that is the topic of this. Now, do students get overzealous? Do they, as you would say, like maybe um, react reflexively to the idea of, I don't like this, I don't like the way that like this makes me feel, so I want to just push it out? Sure. That's all part of the way these things work themselves out. And guess what? On college campuses, they've been working themselves out pretty well over the years. Again, through lots of different things, lots of different times. Um, so I really think what strikes me the most about this whole issue are the people that are coming in, the finger waggers. This is very bad for free speech. I, I'm really concerned here about these students and the way they're trying to assert their right to say that if somebody says something, that they can 
remove them from their, like, ask for them. Well, that's the whole thing, right? Commit, like, speakers, okay? Look, if the college is paying somebody and inviting someone to speak and students are like, I don't, like, that is, that perspective, that view is not something that we want to promote on our university and we are going to do some sort of protest or direct action to try to stop the university from bringing them in. That's like, that's what America's based on. You know, if you're going to aim anything at people, aim it at the administrators who give in to the students. If you really think that these students are being, you know, overindulged or something like that, but whatever it is, the idea of no, you don't have to just say, okay, that you can get people together who feel the same way you feel and say, we demand that some action is taken. That's America. That's what we're based on. So the idea that like it's gone too far because now just you can say something and they can you can they can make them fire you for it. Well, guess what? Freedom of speech has nothing to do with that. Freedom of speech is the government taking action to quell speech. You're talking about not you, but you know, you're talking about freedom from repercussions from speech. No, you don't get that. Nobody gets that. What has changed, and this goes back to social media, Ethan, what has changed is now you have to listen to those people. Now those people that you didn't have to listen to, you have to listen to them. And even more so, people actually think they're right sometimes and actually create more of a ripple. You know, someone can say something. And not only do you have to deal with it, now you got like 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people. Now they're out on your front lawn, you know, occupying it. I think it's beautiful. And I think the, I think what you really need to, I think what really is driving this whole discussion is, if you peel it back, is whose voices are we having to listen to now? Not the content of what they're saying, not whether it's actually some attack on free speech or something like that, but that we are used to, those spaces, and this goes back to what we're talking about with females in football discussions. We're used to those spaces being for certain kinds of voices, basically, you know, white male voices. And when other people's voices can now bubble up to the top and you have to listen to them and you have to hear what they're saying, oh, it's a crisis. Uh, so I'm perfectly fine with uh, the sloppy process of colleges working this stuff out. I think it's outside observers. I think it's people who want to really make this about something that it's not, like a free speech, uh, that are turning this into a, a political football, if you will, where really it's just another iteration of what's been going on on college campuses for a long time. We're going to end the society portion after one last question, one yeah. word answer. Putting you on the spot a little bit. I okay. need a yes or no, though. Sure. Because you sort of touched on it. Do you think that it is right for someone to potentially lose their job over something they say on social media? Yes. I mean, there's always going to be qualifiers, but absolutely um, what you say on social media is a another thing that can reflect back on your employer. Um, now, I think that I just wanted to get that out, and I'm still yeah. wrestling with that issue because I have seen now instances where people have lost their jobs based on something they tweeted. I will say for the record, though, the people who've lost their jobs, the things they have tweeted are, like, totally beyond the pale. They're, like, crazy. Well, like, like crazy context. things. Like, the woman who tweeted the age joke. Like, come on. You need to know better. 
Like, that's, like, common sense. Yes. Well, that's, we'll talk about that off there. So the, where, where I would hesitate is just the idea that employers can punish you for things you do in your private life. Mm-hmm. That's where I get, uh, you know, and it, so I think that depends maybe, so, you know, who you were talking about, Justine Sacco, she was a PR professional. She should know better. Yeah, well, I mean, and it impacts, like, your, that's to me a material, it's a material, uh, you know, uh, black mark on your ability to do your job. If you don't, if your instincts don't tell you that, you know, so, so in the, those kinds of cases, I can say, yeah, I mean, they're definitely things. So, you know, may, may I not have a thunderbolt, you know, lightning, because now he, this is where, this, so Ethan, we're circling all the way back to like, I know I'm going to speak my mind freely. I can't do anything about that. So we have to do some editing. So anyway, go on. <laughs> well, what are we going to be? Well, we'll figure that out after. Um, but nothing, nothing. yeah, we're going to move over to the stuff portion. Um, yeah. All I have here are tales. You have a lot of yeah, stories. Sure. Um, sure. You spent time in Syracuse, spent time in Austin, uh, seeing fish concerts. Um, tell me the most quintessentially Sigmund late teens, early 20s story that you can for the people. Oh, man. There's so many. There's so and, many. and honestly, my original goal for this podcast was just to have you tell stories the entire sure. podcast. Be part that two. that two, might part be two. that might be another time, another podcast for another time, but we had a lot of other things to talk about. But now just just give us a taste of one. Yeah. I'll talk about Mardi Gras in um, twenty uh, I'm sorry, in nineteen ninety eight. My late great friend Jeff Wilson said, We're going to Mardi Gras. I lived in the Northeast, so I was never close enough to New Orleans to do it. I'd heard about it. Um, there's so many sub stories of this story. Let me just—I'll just give—I'll just give people some little pictures uh, from Mardi Gras. And there's parts I have to leave out because I don't want to. Let me put it this way: when you go to Mardi Gras, New Orleans, whatever your line is, you're like, "Well, I would never cross." You'll cross that line. The lines just disappear. Those lines just disappear when you get to Mardi Gras. Um, I can I could tell the part of the story about um, waking up, passed out in the middle of a parade route with a parade going around us with people taking pictures of us because they thought it was so hilarious. I can tell the part about us um, having a, a cat and mouse game with the New Orleans Police Department about our couch on the neutral ground during the parades and the way that they were clearly like something they were clearly messing with us and God bless him, Mark Hoppy, my friend, uh, who we were staying with there wanted to fight a cop. At that point, you're like, I'm going to fight a cop. And at that point, we could not fight a cop, thankfully. Um, I could talk about our friends getting thrown in OPP. Don't ever piss outside during Mardi Gras. You you will get thrown in jail, and you will stay in OPP until the end of Mardi Gras. And um, our buddy uh, who got uh, – and the lawyer that we got for our buddy, we went to his, we went to his law office. It was like an abandoned building. I'm not kidding, Ethan. And it was, it was like, it was his desk had a stapler and a TV on it. And, um, I, he worked out of his trunk basically, you know, and we got to our friend's hearing and he wasn't there. Like, you plead guilty or not guilty. And he's looking at us and there's all these signs up in the courtroom. Like, if you talk, you will be arrested. And he's looking at us. He's like, and he, we're like, you know, and he's like, not guilty. And then the, the lawyer shows up like an hour later. We're like, he already had his court. You know, his appearance. And the guy's like, no, 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 no. We're like, oh, God, 
great. Like our friend's never going to get out of jail. We had <laughs> certain things on him uh, that we didn't know what he was charged with. We couldn't find that out. And then he's like, "What did he say?" He said, "Not guilty." He's like, "Oh, okay. He'll be out. Of, he'll be out of jail in the next twenty four hours. You'll get a phone call." Um, there was whenever I was going to get bail money for my friend, and the numbers on the ATM were starting to move around. Um, there was, oh, geez, I don't even know where to begin. There was the moment that I was in the crowd on Bourbon Street, and you're so packed together that your feet don't even touch the ground. And I felt my legs starting to get wet. And the girl in front of me turns around, she's like, are you pissing on me? And for a second I had to say, it's cold. Someone's drink. No. I wouldn't know. Um, I could go on and on and on of all those little things. Yeah, it's Mardi Gras. This sounds like you a know, book. Be, be pre- oh, yeah. Be prepared. Be prepared. Um, and uh, there's so many stories. Fish tour stories. Oh, God, I don't even know So, yeah, I want to talk about fish because fish yeah. is something that I think I just missed the fish craziness because I remember I had camp counselors when I went to sleepaway camp who loved fish. They were probably right. like five or six years older than me. So I think I just missed the fish craze. But what is it about fish that has generated such a crazy following? And if you want, you tell us your most memorable fish concert, too. Yeah, sure, sure. The sense of community. I mean, this idea that because you cared about this thing, uh, you were instantly embraced by all these people that you never even met before, like you had known them your whole life. Um the idea that on any given night, anything could happen. And, you know, Fish is going to be pulling from their entire catalog on any given night. And any song can be played in any way. It can come out of any other song. So there could be a song that they've never played before. There could be a song they haven't played for 10 or 15 years. Um, and it, it, it could, they don't know where it's going to go. And it's this exchange of energy, you know. Like, I, I'll say this. The first time I went to see Fish concert, Binghamton, April 9th, 1994, Everybody I looked around looked like they could not possibly be more excited. Like, this was the greatest thing ever was going to happen that night. And that was how it was every night. I mean, that was the feeling every night, you know, like the anticipation. Like, you could come up with anything in the world, and it would not be – it it could not tear me away from this. Like, there's not a thing you could imagine that I would rather be doing than – this right here, right now, and being part of that, like, you, like nightly euphoria and jubilation. But then there was also, like Jerry Garcia said, you can't ride the railroads anymore, so people follow the Grateful Dead. It was this idea of getting you out and doing something. I, Ethan, I said a lot of, I, I said a lot of bullshit. I say a lot of bullshit still. That is really just justifying, rationalizing. This is what makes me, you know, an attorney, right? Or like, a, this is what draws people to the legal profession is rationalizing things, right? And back then I used to say, like, I'm doing this now, like, taking off the whole summer. My whole summers were organized around Fish Tour, you know. Other friends were doing, like, internships and stuff for their careers. I was working food service jobs because I could work, like, 70 hours in a weekend sometimes. If there was a big weekend at Syracuse, so I could just save money and then do the whole Fish Tour that summer. And I'd say, I'm doing this stuff now because I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it later. And I was right. I was just saying that shit to justify it. You really, there's a certain time in your life that you can do those things. And, it, and when it's gone, it's gone. And you could go back when you have like money and time, but you're not the same person anymore. You're not weightless, right? There's a certain moment in our lives between like 19 and 22 where we're soaring. We don't even realize it, right? Like you're the most you you're ever going to be in your life because you haven't figured out yet the reality. You know, you're still in this place where um, you, you don't even know what you're capable of 
and you don't even realize that you're soaring, and that's what allows you to be soaring. So, so Fish Tour just dovetailed with that perfectly. So because of that, like all the people, lifelong friends that I've made, all the crazy experiences, oh man, I don't even know where to begin. And the places that I've been, the things that I've seen, the things that have happened, I mean, because it wasn't just Fish Tour, it was all these cities, and you know, we'd always find ways to stop at national parks or weird things. And back then in the 90s, gas was under a dollar. You could camp in your car, sell beers or Coke or whatever, Coke, like Coca-Cola, sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, or other things, uh, T-shirts, for instance. Uh, you know, you could do it. Like you could just get in your car and get to the first show and then you just figure it out as you would go. Um, it was a sense of adventure, a sense of open-ended adventure. And the shows were just kind of the excuse to get you out there for that. Um, you know, as far as a most memorable show, that's really, really difficult. But I will say this, Fish Millennium in Big Cypress down on the Seminole Indian Reservation down in Florida, Everglades. Uh, we all trucked it down there, brought up, you know, our own little movable feasts. And every, no one knew what was going to happen. Right? There was something in the air like, hey, at midnight, like planes would start dropping out of the sky or something, Y2K problem, things like that. And I just remember being struck with this feeling of like, they're brilliant. Like, this is like, so if, if the shit goes down, like, we'll just be out here together in the Everglades with all the people we want to be with and whatever. They'll probably just keep playing every night and it'll be perfect and we won't even care. Like, it'll almost seem like better that everything is falling apart because we just get to have our own little universe that's ours now um so there's always that sense of that you know clifford ball in 1996 the first big festival they did like <clears throat> we got to see our full community and thinking like like wow like we we are creating something this is the, another part of the fish where it's this idea of like like you know fish would show up in a city and they had never had a radio hit or anything like that and you know twelve thousand people would turn out and sell out like the hockey arena in grand rapids or something and it would be like, um, like our little secret, you know, that we could just go from city to city. And then every now and then we would go someplace like somewhere like Lake Placid, like a little ski resort town up in the Adirondacks. And if there's like an editorial in the newspaper because they were doing a two night run at the end of the '95 fall tour, uh, legendary December '95 fish. Like, be nice to the fish kids that are coming. Like, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna have fun and. You know, don't, don't bot, like, don't worry about them. Like, this is, it's great that, that they're ending up their tour here and like restaurants and places were staying open for 72 hours for us. And the pieces are like changing their menus to like, you know, reference fish music titles and stuff. So occasionally we would go somewhere that would, cause you know, you would go to some places where it was clear it was like hostility. <laughs> you could see it. I mean, you, you, that they would get all the undercover police out. They would be busting people. You'd see like, for, I was at Ethan. I was at the Bryce Jordan Center in State College in 1996, and um, we were doing the kinds of things that you do at fish concerts. And my friend was next to me, and, and we were like in the fourth row at that show too. My friend was next to me, and then I turned back to give him something, and he wasn't there, and he got arrested. In and I think in the Bryce Jordan Center, they actually have a place that they can like book you. And, and, you know, release you, you know, I think we got, we found him after the show, like, what happened? He's like, yeah, I got arrested, man, you know, like, you know, state college, maybe not the most hospitable. So you just had all, all, all these experiences. It's all, I guess that's the thing, right? It's all memorable, 
right? I think there's a couple of nights that I'd save. I don't know if I remember too much about that one, but uh, I highly, highly recommend to anybody uh, out there that is in that period of their life that they're soaring. Like, do it. Do stupid things. Take chances. Like, you know, like, do things where you don't know whether you can handle it or how it's going to turn out or how exactly you're going to make it work because that's that time is only going to happen once in your life. And once you know better, even if you do stupid stuff, it's going to be different because you know better. So do it now. You know what? First of all, we're going to end it on that because I totally concur with that point. And that is the best advice I feel like you could possibly give someone in that age bracket. And second of all, at some point, and I'm conceiving now of how this is going to be, we will have you on again, and we are just yeah. going to talk about tales. Sure, sure. And, and I'm going to be bringing some other people on as well, because I think what I'm planning on doing for next week uh, is next week is going to be a one-topic show, and my followers and followers of Ad Ethan Ham will get to vote on the topic. I'm going to put a poll up uh, probably right when this is released or the next day. So Thursday or Friday, and we'll see what people want. And then after that, I'll bring on some recurring guests, maybe a new guest, um, get a forum going, and we'll be spending the entire show talking about one topic. And in the future, one of those shows is just going to be a storytelling show, which is going, which you will be invited on for, yeah. and it'll be amazing. Yeah, and I want to slip in here, too, because you had had on the agenda what am I listening to. I just want to say a quick shout-out. The new, it was new, like, mid-January, Anderson Pock, Anderson Dot Pock, he's really, the talk is really important to him. Malibu, incredible. I mean, if there's a, going to be a better album as far as I'm concerned this year, I really look forward to it because um, this album is really special, and this dude is going to be a superstar. And this is the, you know, he's going to probably tour behind this album, Malibu, and this is a moment to get to see somebody, like, before they're about to take off and get massive because he's the next guy. Like he's got it and he knows he's got it. So if you haven't checked out Malibu yet, it's the jam. It's on the list. I'm I'm still working my way through. Although I've listened to it a couple of times. Uh, I I listened to Hamilton in full the first time this weekend, which was Mm -hmm. great. And then also I'm still working my way through the life of Pablo. Um, Uh, I haven't listened to it yet. So don't ruin it for him. It's, it's pretty good. It has moments. I don't think it's as good as um, my beautiful, Fantasy, I appreciate Kanye good. and like what he's putting out there and the way he bugs people. I actually really like that. His music has never quite agreed with me, but I'm glad he's out there doing it. It has its moments. It's doing its thing. He's doing his thing. Uh, he's complaining about not having money, but otherwise, I think we're all <laughs> yeah. good. Your clothing I love Kanye. Not he's dad. It's not going to happen. Stop trying to make it happen, Kanye. Ka- Kanye is dad. He doesn't understand. I think he might have lost his grip a little bit on how things work, but we still love him anyway. Sigmund Bloom. Uh, what a show. Thank you so much for being on. It was a pleasure to have you, and you're definitely going to be on again soon. So thank you again. Uh, That's all for this episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. Uh, Keep an eye on my Twitter at Ethan Ham for more information about next week's podcast. We're having a vote over the weekend, and then uh, we'll be able to get a little forum together for that new episode. Until then, have a good one.